What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. Find it on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. As a teenager, Heather Mazier was obsessed with her then-Congressman Dick Durbin. I used to follow him around to all the town hall meetings that he'd have (laughs) in all the communities. And I would go to all of them, and he would just crack up. He'd be like, hey, Heather, there there I am again. If you have ever been a teen, you know that this is not average teen behavior. But Mazier was a political junkie from an early age. When most little young teens had poster pinups of teen idols in their room. (laughs) Mine were Jack and Bobby Kennedy and an American flag. And I kid you not, I woke up every morning saying uh, the American creed. Now, you'd be forgiven if you forgot that distinctly American acclamation from your junior high civics class. I believe in the United States of America as a government of the people, by the people, for the people, whose just powers are derived from the consent of the governed a democracy and a republic, a sovereign nation of many sovereign states, a perfect union, one inseparable, established upon the principles of freedom, humanity, justice. I'm kind of losing a little bit of it there. <laughs> freedom, which, freedom, justice, some other yeah, things. Who some cares? other things uh, for which American patriots sacrifice their lives and fortunes. That's pretty impressive considering that it's been a long time since Mazir was that bright-eyed patriotic teen. But the sentiments of that manifesto have stuck with Mazir her whole life. Mazir spent eight years as a delegate in the Maryland legislature before turning her sights on the governor's mansion. In 2014, she mounted a bid for the state's highest office. I realized, you know what's motivating me most now is the desire to set the agenda. So Mazir campaigned to be governor, but she lost in the Democratic primary. So what did you do after the campaign? Hmm. <laughs> cry. (laughs) Thankfully, that part was short lived. But you know, the whole entire time I was running while the world was telling me I could never win because of everything that was stacked against me. I always had to believe that I would win. And to then reconcile all of that after it's over is is a, a release. I'm Lauren Ober, and this is The Big Listen from WAMU and NPR. Each week on the show, we explore the expanding universe of podcasts to bring you enlightening conversations. And maybe, just maybe, we help you find some new things to listen to. After her failed gubernatorial run, Heather Mazier decamped to her family farm on Maryland's eastern shore. And she played a lot of cards. I had this old piece of wood that I hung over my lap on the rocking chair, and I was playing solitaire, which I hadn't done in years. This was unscheduled free time, and I almost didn't know how to use it. Mazir spent two years after the campaign figuring out what was next. That entailed meditating and fasting and being in nature. What she landed on was an idea she called soul force politics, which is... This notion of bringing our, our highest self and a deep commitment to loving our country... Uh, and loving ourselves and each other into this big democracy experiment of, of creating a world that we get to manifest together. And naturally, this notion needed a podcast. We'll hear more from Mazir in a bit about using a podcast to spread her message of radical empowerment and political change. But first, we're going to hear from some other women trying to disrupt the world, or at least their little corner of it. 
Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin are the hosts of Unladylike. On the show, they highlight stories from, quote, rule-breaking ladies about everything from how to confidently ride a bike to how to have successful, meaningful, mutually beneficial lady friendships. Sometimes it's not all, yes, queen, yes, queen. Some days I'm like, no, queen, no. (laughs) Thank God it's not just me. I know, but that right there, Caroline, is the beauty of the gal pal. Because a gal pal is your gal who's there when you are feeling no queen, when oh. you are like digging crumbs of donuts out of your sweatpants. Like, oh, God. She all accepts the time. you as you are. Previously, the pair hosted Stuff Mom Never Told You, where they faced down the challenges of womanhood together, like understanding how estrogen works and unpacking the history of the female power suit. Unladylike is the evolution of that. Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin, co-hosts of Unladylike, welcome to The Big Listen. Oh, thanks so much for having us. We're super excited. Tell me what it means to be unladylike. This is Kristen. The first thing that comes to mind when I think about unladylike is the idea of claiming your space, claiming your physical space, claiming your mental space, um, and kind of empowering yourself with knowledge of like why why we have to deal with unladylike BS to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is Caroline. There's just an expectation about women behaving, being quieter and you know not challenging the status quo. And so like it or not, it seems like being able to actually speak up and use our voices is an unladylike trait. I guess then the question is, what does it mean to be a lady? The expectation is that you're going to follow the rules, whatever the mm-hmm. rules are. Um, and you're, you're <laughs> basically, you become unladylike when you cross the threshold and leave your house and have to interact <laughs> with other human beings in public, it seems. Oh, I think, too, though, that you can, you can be unladylike at home oh, as yeah, well totally. because there are so many... You know, private activities that we are, as women, are socialized away from and are shamed about. Mm-hmm. So I think in, in our podcast world, to be a lady is to be like a gender status conscious rule follower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, were either of you called unladylike when you were younger? Like, did any teachers or parents or, you know, relatives or anybody just say, that's so unladylike, stop doing that? The way that um, I was taught about, like, you know, stand up straight and hold your stomach in and, you know, make sure that you, like, try to look slim. Um, it was more the things that I was being told of how how to look um, rather than directly being told, like, unladylike. That was kind of right. the subtext of it, of, like... <laughs> who, who was, telling you, who was telling you that? Who was telling you to hold your stomach in? Well, it was my mom. But I will tell you this, Lauren, I have terrific posture now. (laughs) Yeah, she really does. So, I guess mom was on to something. Yeah. Yeah. But it was it was definitely like the, the messages that I got growing up. Yeah. Yeah. My my mom is still, I think, disappointed that I did not become a pearl wearing Vera Bradley bag carrying sorority girl in college. Oh, I had so much pearl pressure. <laughs> oh, the pearl, pearl, pressure pearl pressure is out of control. We have super southern moms. Yes. Well, and, you, and you live in the south too. So you're do, surrounded by it. So many pearls. Oh my so god, the pearls. pearls. I'm assuming you each describe yourselves as feminists. We do. Oh, definitely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> I shave. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> right. So I yes, I, yeah, yes, I, we, I, do. Yes, I, we I, do. Both absolutely. Feminists. How how did you each um, arrive on? Uh, that path. I mean, did you? Was it? Um, was there a, a like a journey that you each went on, or did you just like one day in junior high you're like, I'm a feminist, and like never look back? Oh God, I kind of wish that had been me in junior I high. I was still so so far away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in middle school, I was still so concerned. Well, God, middle school and high school, I was probably really concerned with what people thought of me. Um, I I did not have like a a journey per se, or even really a light bulb moment. I just sort of always knew that like it was stupid to ever assume that women were less than. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was also, despite the fact that my mother was like so Southern, she wasn't very traditional. And um, so I was essentially raised by this woman who constantly told me to find myself and find my career before I settled on a man. I do remember there was a moment in college, I was a senior and I had to like fill one more requirement for a 101 class. And so I took a sociology 101 class. We were talking about feminism and the professor put up uh, like on the board, a column by some feminist from some newspaper and a girl in class raised her hand and said, "Um, if we want to get married and we like men, shouldn't we not listen to anything this woman said (laughs) and I like blacked out for a minute and uh when I came to I was yelling at her and from across the room I was shouting that uh basically essentially what I told her was that all of her ideas were were ridiculous and that you can be a feminist and still like men uh and she needed to get with the program and uh so you can also be a feminist and not like men you can be a feminist and like whoever (laughs) whoever you want but I think feminism, the definition has changed over the years and different people, it means different things to different people. So I wonder what feminism means to each of you at this point in your lives. It's taking a look beyond the layers of gender and sex and recognizing um, more of the nuances among genders and our different experiences and how all of that inflects the lives that we live and then conversely like how we are treated my feminism and the way i practice it is that um it's about listening to other people of different identities making room at the table for other people and that's why like with our podcast we were so dead set on making sure that we brought in more voices and that it's not just about like hey other feminists let's talk to you let's talk to other women our age well, Rosalind, would you call yourself mm-hmm. unladylike? Unladylike. Yeah, I don't listen to other people. You know, who do you think you are? Especially when people say no to me. Anytime you say no, then it's a challenge for me. I must overcome you. I, I wonder when uh, each of you have broken the rules. Non-podcast related, the first thing that comes to my mind is um, getting married last year and uh, to a man mm-hmm. and not changing my it's okay. name. We won't, we won't judge you. It's a safe space. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. But yeah, He's a feminist. The name thing is, I mean, a lot of people are, oh, it stirs people up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and that did feel like, uh, that, that did feel like playing playing with the rules and mm-hmm. and also just you know like quitting our day jobs and 
yeah. um, you know, making my closet into a studio <laughs> and wearing sweatpants far too often. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. And I probably, it's sort of ridiculous that I don't have an answer prepared. I haven't. I know your answer. What is my answer? <laughs> Sorry, we, we, we know each other We do too spend well. a lot of time together. Kids. Oh, yeah. I don't want kids. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I like that's how little I think about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Like you're like, oh, like, that was decided long ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a major rule breaker and that's that's something that um patronizing women, not men. Men, I don't think I've ever had a conversation really with a know-it-all man about children. Mm-hmm. Uh they they mansplain other things to me. I think you have to have wait to have a child before that starts happening. Yeah, it's <laughs> other women in. who have throughout my life told me that I will change my mind right. and I just need to I just need to wait for that moment. And, uh, you know, every once in a while I do a little check-in mentally, emotionally, see how I'm feeling, and it's always the same. Yeah. And I never want children. I think when people, they they know their own mind, it can be nerve-wracking for people or confusing because it's like, it's like, but how could you know your own mind? You're a lady. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder what advice you have on how to sort of like slough off the patriarchy or or live beyond it or even to smash it as you suggest. I think for a lot, a lot, a lot of young women, it really starts with um, accepting the fact that like you are, you're valid and, and worth um, taking the time to to think about all of these things. That you're valid, your feelings are valid and nothing to apologize for and that it's okay to get angry. Mm-hmm. You should get angry because if it propels you forward to take action, then more power to you. Kristen Conger and Caroline Irvin are the hosts of Unladylike from Stitcher. To find out more about their show, hit up biglisten.org. Now, remember our other Unladylike pal from the top of the show, Heather Mazier. She was a gubernatorial candidate in Maryland in 2014, but she lost the Democratic primary. After her defeat, Mazier holed up at her 34-acre organic herb farm where she lived with her wife, Deborah, to contemplate her next moves. Mazir wanted to create a new paradigm for American politics. And one way to do that was through people's headphones. So she started a podcast. If you would have asked me a handful of years ago if I would end up being a podcaster, I would have said, I, what is that? But what a beautiful tool for getting communication and connection and ideas out to massive audiences. Mazir's podcast studio is impressive. It's a little wooden salt box with picture windows overlooking a natural pool surrounded by wetlands. Inside, the walls are covered in political memorabilia from Mazir's lifetime of collecting. There's an Obama campaign sign and a poster of Roosevelt and Truman and a photo of her and her old boss, former Secretary of State John Kerry. There's also a tray full of crystals, a prayer shawl, and some books on mindfulness. For Mazir, the space represents the two halves of her work. It's just um, a place that you can really lose yourself. This building is idyllic. Seriously, I'm so jealous of this space. It's amazing. Anyway, Mazir's podcast, Soul Force Politics, is mostly interviews with politicians and activists who she wants to learn from. Those include political allies like Senator Cory Booker and former Senator Barbara Mikulski. 
as well as those on the other side of the aisle, like Maryland's Republican Governor Larry Hogan and Republican Congressman Andy Harris, who she talked to about gun control. You know, I, I think about this sometimes, you know, the, the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates. Which went <laughs> Weren't on they for, lucky? Uh, yeah, because they the, had an audience that would actually listen to them for and, hours. And no tweets. <laughs> it. Uh, but for hours, literally for hours, civilly discussing a very basic disagreement between two, between two people. Mazir's podcast is just one part of her Soul Force politics operation. She also writes about topics like civil discourse and marijuana legalization, and she organizes trainings on nonviolent resistance and female leadership. But the podcast is the main vehicle for getting her message out. The best way for me to get the messages and the tools out there was in this amazing new technology that is accessible to everyone with a smartphone or a computer and an internet connection. We're going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we're going to catch up with comedian Nicole Byer about the central question she has for people in her life. Why won't you date me? I have been single for my entire life. (laughs) And I know why. I'm like a pretty difficult person. But first, we talked to Washington Post reporter Dan Lamoth about discovering letters written between four Midwestern brothers during World War II. Some of them are in envelopes, some of them are loose, some of them are out of order. Uh, They're written on paper that's basically tissue paper. It It was amazing this stuff hadn't fallen apart. That's up next. Stick around. This is NPR. Hi, my name is Blake Burkhead. I live in Snow Hill, Maryland, and I would like to recommend the Ink Stains podcast with John Urbansek. It's really a creative outlet podcast where the author showcases various forms of writing projects that he calls Ink Stains. He withdraws a card, a single one, from the deck with a languid deliberation. Is it a magic trick? she asks. He flips the card with a flick and a flourish, reveals it's the seven of diamonds, and places it on the table between them. No, he says, his gaze never releasing her eyes. It's a wager. She drops her voice to a properly flirtatious level. What are the stakes? A kiss, he says. And it's very enjoyable. Have a great day. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober. And if you've been listening to a show that gets you motivated to make art or really to do anything, let us know about it. Dial up the pod line at 202-885-POD1 and leave us a voicemail. We want to love what you love. Almost a decade ago, an Arizona man bid on the contents of a storage unit. When he opened the unit, all he found inside were boxes upon boxes of letters. The letters were written by four brothers from Illinois, Ralph, Frank, John, and Sanford Ide, over many decades beginning during World War II. Three were military men and one was a civilian. The man who found them held on to them for years before contacting a reporter at the Washington Post about them. That reporter, Dan Lamoth, then did the most logical thing with the letters. He turned them into a podcast. Training starts Monday. That's tomorrow. And watch me show them rookies how to march. Chow's going to be sounding pretty soon, so I may have to leave before I finish this. So now, if you don't mind me leaving, 
I'll be signing off, eat chow, and walk around this place so I can write more about the place later. So goodbye for now. We'll write Ralph another letter later. So long for now. Love, John. Dan Lamoth, national security reporter at The Washington Post and host of Letters from War. Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you. I want to know how you came to be in possession of these letters and how many were there? The answer to your second question is I'm not quite sure. I tried to count and struggled. Really? Uh, Why? Just the sheer volume. Some of them didn't have envelopes. Some of them did. Uh, It's upwards of 500, probably closer to 1,000. Yeah. Um, You know, they came to us in multiple boxes Mm -hmm. uh, after I went out to Arizona uh, to get to your first question. Um, A uh, Marine veteran named Joseph Alozzi uh, reached out to the post. It's got to be close to two years ago at this Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. uh, and said, hey, uh, I used to be uh, into buying out storage units. Uh, He had a secondhand shop. uh, and, And basically, I found this. I thought it was amazing. Um, and would would you be interested in, in you know really diving in and doing mm-hmm. doing a story? So um, so we should probably talk about who the Eid brothers were, the fellows who wrote all of these letters that you uh, that basically ended up on your doorstep. Uh, yeah, fascinating fellows. Um, they're four brothers: Frank, Sanford, Ralph, and John. Uh, Frank was the oldest. Um, he enlisted in the Marine Corps before the war started. The next brother was Sanford. Um, he never joined the military uh, and ultimately was uh, designated 4F. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a variety of reasons you can be 4F, ranging from uh, a skip in your heartbeat to something more serious. Uh, he was a very thoughtful guy. He's a very eloquent writer. Right. Uh, Ralph uh, kind of becomes, I think, probably the star of the story. Uh, there are more letters from Ralph than anyone else. Ralph was in two very significant battles. Uh, so he's wounded in the Battle of a Two uh, mm-hmm. in this kind of like awful hellscape, Alaska, Oof. Aleutian Islands out in the fog and ice. And I mean, the photographs, I mean, they're they're fighting in the muck. Right. I mean, you might as well be in the Arctic Circle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he heals up. He initially thinks, oh, you know, this might be it for me. Maybe I can go home. Uh, his unit is instead sent to Hawaii to get some jungle warfare training. They're then sent to the Marshall Islands, oh. and he ends up fighting and getting wounded a second time in yeah. the Battle of Kwajalein. And then there's one more brother, yep. John. Uh, the youngest brother is John. Uh, he kind of wrestles with what to do and how to do it. Uh, for a while, his brothers are telling him to stay out of the military. right. Uh, and then they said, well, if you're going to do the military, you know, you're really mechanically inclined. You're really good with your hands. Right. You've got this thing where you, you, know, you love working with bicycles. You'd probably be a great mechanic. Mm-hmm. He ultimately ends up in the Army Air Corps, uh, which becomes the modern day Air Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he spends time in the Pacific in the latter stages of the war uh, working on bombers as those bombers are making uh, raids and runs mm-hmm. into Japan. Right. But he never sees combat. Correct. Right. So... Can you describe for me the experience of of reading the letters for the first time? Uh, it was wild, uh, and it, and at first it felt kind of like a fact finding mission of okay, the post is willing to send me out really just to read this stuff and yeah. see if it's worthwhile, <laughs> right? Uh, which you know I'm, I already pretty feel feel pretty fortunate there. There's a mm-hmm. lot of places that wouldn't have the uh, the resources or the wherewithal to do that. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but once I started actually going through them, it was sort of this mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of reading it out of order. There's There was no, I mean, sort of coordinated by year, but not really. Right. Um, some of them are in envelopes. Some of them are loose. Some of them are out of order. Uh, they're written on paper that's basically tissue paper. Yeah. It, was, it was amazing this stuff hadn't fallen apart. Right. Uh, and some of them probably did fall apart. Mm-hmm. I mean, there there are clearly gaps in the story that you know I think we'll never know at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, especially when I started reading some of the firsthand accounts of these battles, uh, Ralph describing getting blown out of a foxhole, yeah, things like that. It it was it was pretty jarring. Yeah, and it it definitely struck me very loud and clear, uh, having been in combat and covered combat in Afghanistan. Uh, that some things never really change. Right. I- explain that. What are the similarities that you saw? Um, I think there are things where uh, y- when you're wrapping your head around what might happen or not, uh, there are things you tell your family. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things you tell each other. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think you're more inclined to say things that maybe you would leave unsaid otherwise. Um, you know, that they're very clearly expressing their affection for each other in a way that, you know, man-to-man people don't always do. Yeah. Um, so I found that interesting. Um, they're very in touch with the religion. Uh, mm. they, they very clearly, you know, find peace with God before they go into these battles. Right. Um, I found that interesting. Um, and, and then, especially after Ralph is wounded the first time and then again the second time, there's this sense in the family of, like, we've done enough. Right. And John writes Ralph at one point saying that he broke down bawling yeah. uh, in front of his own unit once he heard about Ralph's injuries. And, you know, more or less, I really hope he, and it's very unclear how hurt or not he is. Mm-hmm. They're getting this days later. Uh, you know, it's that sort of stuff was, I think, very universal. One thing that struck me was how sweet the letters were. They were very they felt very innocent and there was this real intense nostalgia for um, Rockford, Illinois. At about 6.30 p.m., I play catch with fellas outside just to keep my arm in shape. Everything is dried up out here. Sure miss the greenness of everything in Rockford. Trees, grass, and also Ma's good meals and clean clothes all the time. Right now, I wash my own and a fella has an electric iron in barracks and I use that to press my pants with. Have to look neat all the time, clean shaven every day, shower at least once a day. You know a fellow doesn't really appreciate his home, town, and state until he's far away where things aren't home-like and the climate is different. I can understand Frank's philosophy that he writes home every now and then about life. He tells Ma to go to bed early all the time and now do that, Ma. Regular hours we have learned is the thing that builds steady health. Tell John to appreciate Rockford and everything at home, his job and all, because you never miss them until you're away in some desolate part of the country. Yeah, looking at the tone of the letters, I was really struck with uh, sort of the two sides to it. On one hand, they had this gee whiz quality, you know, this black and white uh, feel to them of, you know, writing about mom's pie and the food they were eating and... Um, movie stars of the time and and things along those lines that just seem very like dated, right? Uh, you know, like. And on the other hand, um, when they're writing about the Japanese, especially, which is you know where both both brothers who did see combat ended up in the Pacific, um, you know, it it is I think more of a universal thing. You know, they very clearly dehumanize uh, the right. Japanese 
and that's not an uncommon thing when when you're going into battle you know i think you're trying to make them as a other right um and talking to to modern vets and and folks that i've been in combat with that's something they do too it's sort of the grappling with i need to do xyz i need to live with it later right um and you know what does it take for somebody to to get there. Um, how common was it, do you think, during World War II to have entire families like this um, end up in the service? Uh, fairly common. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least every family, virtually every family, it seems, had some connection to the war and a much, much more firsthand connection to the war than, than we would ever see now. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you were working in a def- you know defense factory or you know the, the Rosie the Riveter sort of feel to things, um, but then just the millions and millions of people that served at the same time, right? Um, you know, it was just an entirely different kind of feel to it than than we would ever see now. Right, right. Now, um, the letters in the podcast are read by voice actors who all happen to be military veterans themselves. I wonder what prompted that decision. Why did you want vets to read? Uh, Yeah, that was my idea. It it occurred to me that there are a number of veterans groups that are kind of deeply involved in the arts Mm -hmm. uh, in a variety of ways, acting, comedy, all the above, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And these folks might be not not only like willing, but actually quite interested in doing it. Uh, so we, I reached out to a couple groups that I was aware of. The group we ended up with was great, mm-hmm. very significant service, um, ranging from Iraq to Afghanistan, right. multiple deployments, multiple combat deployments, uh, and then there's a two part discussion uh, that, that's posted with the with the podcast uh, where, the, where they kind of did dive into some of their own experiences and mm-hmm. what they saw when they were reading these letters. Yeah. You know, they each play a specific part. Um, and and I think they were able to relate to the, their own characters in some ways. Mm-hmm. And you got a Marine reading a Marine, like things like that. Right. Uh, and, and again, they, they, they pointed out things that didn't change, you know, language things that seem the same, uh, cultural things that seem the same. So it, it was it was f- interesting and fun in that regard. Yeah. And so the... If 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 I take away anything from, you know, like what what would you like somebody to learn about World War Two, or sort of what picture would you like to paint about World War Two through these letters? Uh, uh re- really, a, a lot of the stories I do, and this this goes for modern times now too, is there there are so many people that write about the war on a strategic level, and you know. You know, it's the the Nazi logos, and it's um, you know the the, the moving uh, map of who owns what at what point. Uh, th- this was a people story. Uh, this was a story about individuals who are not different, not that much different from people that live down the street from you right now, uh, who went through incredible experiences. In some cases, some incredible, incredibly traumatic experiences, um, and and came out of it different people, uh, for better and worse, and. I, I feel like that's sort of that's another universal theme is, you know, like we're now grappling as a nation with a war that's been ongoing really for an entire generation. Right. You know, we have people that are probably enlisting in the next year or two who were not born when 9-11 happened. Right. And, you know, like there is a whole long discussion to be had about, you know, how do we capture those memories? How mm-hmm. do we capture them fairly? You know, mm-hmm. not just in the movies of the Navy SEALs, but but also the, the, the folks who were walking regular patrols and turning wrenches and, and all of those sorts of things. 
Dan Lamoth is the host of Letters from War from The Washington Post. To find out more about the show, check out BigListen.org. Well, it's time for another quick break. But when we come back, we'll get down and dirty with comedian Nicole Byer about why she can't seem to catch a man. In my brain, I was like, he'll leave her soon, right? (laughs) And then they had kids. And then I was like, but like, maybe those kids will drive him away. (laughs) And it's just a very foolish way of thinking. That's coming up in a sec. Don't go anywhere. This is NPR. Hey, pals, thanks for listening to The Big Listen. Do us a favor and help us out by telling us what you like and how we can improve by completing a short anonymous survey at npr.org slash podcast survey. It just takes a few minutes of your time and you'll do us all at The Big Listen a huge favor by filling it out. That's npr.org slash podcast survey. And thanks. Hey guys, my name is Astrid. I'm calling from Cary, North Carolina, and um, I love a show that is called Art Curious. It's the Art Curious podcast. They like to tell weird history about art. We began with an exploration of the ways in which war and art have always been connected, and how World War I and the era leading up to the Second World War produced a number of artists and art movements that engaged directly with the political and cultural themes swirling around and in Europe. Today, though, will be a reflection that moves even closer to the Second World War through a discussion of Adolf Hitler himself, who aspired to be a successful artist long before he ventured disastrously into the political realm. From the first episode, this show gripped me right away, and it's ridiculously well-produced. They're fantastic, and I think they deserve a lot more love and a lot of listeners. So thank you. Love the show. Thank you. Bye. Hey, pals. Welcome back to The Big Listen. I'm Lauren Ober, and thanks to Astrid, North Carolina, for calling in. Now, if you have a favorite show that you think deserves some love, call us up and let us know about it. The pod line number is 202-885-POD1. We can't wait to hear your beautiful voice. Nicole Byer is a pretty successful comedian. She stars in her own scripted TV show called Loosely Exactly Nicole. And before that, she was on MTV's Girl Code. She's brazen and raunchy and barely safe for public radio. Here she is recently on Conan. I was on a flight from Louisiana to Atlanta, then heading back to L.A. And I was on the descent and I was very chilly, so I said, better cover up. And I pulled out the blanket out of this sealed plastic bag, open it, a little brown crumble falls on me. I was like, oh me, oh my, what hath that be? (laughs) But I forge ahead because I'm chilly. So I like open it more and I see this like brown thing in it. So I drop it because I was like, is it an animal? What is it? So then I open it with my foot. This man's staring at me. I'm in first class, thank you. And (laughs) the smell hits me and I was like, oh my God. Oh my God, I think that's a piece of poop. So gross. But while Bayer is hilarious and talented, she's not so lucky in the dating arena. So she started a podcast to figure out why. It's called, Why Won't You Date Me? I feel like the older I get, the more dating, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people are trash. Like a lot of people are garbage. And 
I don't know how to find a good one. Like, I don't, there's, there should be like, a, you know, like a rec center where there's like a Saturday night of good people. Yeah. <laughs> Nicole Byer, host of Why Won't You Date Me? Welcome to The Big Listen. Thank you for having me. So um, why are you single? Because like you're employed, you're a good looking lady, you're funny. <gasps> I don't know, is Thank your apartment, you. like oh is it God. full of cats or like... Like um, no. stacks of old newspaper. Like, what do you think it is? What, what's, what's the I reason? Mean, oh, I have been single for my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I like can't catch a man to save my life. Um, and I know why. I'm like a pretty difficult person. <laughs> uh, I've done, I think, 21 interviews with people and I asked them, why they wouldn't date me. And it, a lot of them came down to, I have a wall up. Uh, I feel, people feel like I'm performative a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I hide behind jokes a little bit. Mm-hmm. I am just like a loud person. Like I can't, I don't know how to change that. I'm right. 30 years old and it's I've been loud for 30 years. Yeah. It's a long time. The volume stuff uh, on I high. Am, truly it is. Yeah. I got sent outside a lot in school. They'd be like, please leave the classroom. I'd be like, but I just want to scream. Wait, would did um, they ever, can I ask you a question? Because I feel sure. a, a little kinship right now. Did your, was your desk ever out in the hall? No, but my second grade teacher used to, when she got tired of me, would send me to go find my mother because my mother worked in the school. <laughs> and I would wander the hallways trying to find this woman and it would take like a half hour and it would be a half hour of peace for my second grade teacher and then I'd bring my mother back and I'd have to apologize you got a lot of learning done I didn't get any learning done I would rush through (laughs) things just so I could like talk and like be loud but it turns out I have ADHD I found that out like a like a last year I went to a psychiatrist because I was like, I think I might have ADHD. And she's like, well, let's dive in. Started talking 45 minutes later. Oh, it's severe. We need to get you on something. And then like a lot of things from my childhood. I was like, oh, oh, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> so so you've always been loud. You think maybe that is um, one of the contributing factors to your single yeah, um, I'm also a plus size lady, a fat lady, however you want to phrase it, and that that's like a an aesthetic thing. I mm-hmm. get that not everybody's attracted to it, so it's just a lot of things rolled into one. Yeah. When did you start dating people? Were you were you like you know out and about like in high school or or or? Oh God, no. Yeah. No, in high school, I was just like a dark, pimply, fat little girl. And Cute. I don't think, and I grew up in like an all white town, and I don't think that I was the ideal for them, uh-huh. which might be me, you know, projecting, but like also I was very single, so I yeah. think that's what it was. Yeah. Um, I didn't really start dating until college. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there was this one guy in college that I like yeah. loved. And? I mean, I think it was, uh, you know, giving back a little bit, but then also it wasn't. He was also dating somebody else, full disclosure. I was the other woman, like willingly the other woman. (laughs) I like in my brain, I was like, he'll leave her soon, right? (laughs) And then they had kids. And then I was like, but like, maybe those kids will drive him away. (laughs) And 
<laughs> it's just a very foolish way of thinking. <laughs> yeah, but it happens every day. <laughs> it's yeah. Not, it's not like you're the only one, you know. Um, <laughs> so you um, you talk on your show about your experience online dating, and it seems grim out there. Oh, it's awful. Getting to know someone new is like a job. Yeah. I was dating this guy and we went on a bunch of dates, like six, seven, seven dates maybe. I don't know. But I was like, this is like a like a part time job. Mm -hmm. I have to like text you and ask you questions and answer your questions and then figure out how I feel comfortable with you. Mm -hmm. And then I started feeling very comfortable with him. And I was like, oh, great. I guess this is now my boyfriend. (laughs) And then he was like, bye bye. I was like, great. Cool. So I got fired from this job before I got upgraded to full time and got benefits. Cool. Cool. Right. So that's what dating is. Dating is a real job. Right. 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 Exactly. Uh, have you? I feel like you've gotten some good advice though from from some of the guests on your show. The good dating advice. Oh yeah, I've gotten a lot of good yeah. advice. What um, has anything stuck with you in terms of you like, oh, maybe I'll try that. Yeah, my friend George in a recent episode was like, you should just talk to people. He's like, if you're yeah. in the supermarket and you see someone attractive, just talk to them. George was so good. I've been like, yeah, George is great. Mm-hmm. He's very smooth, and yeah. I'm so, like, I don't know why he's single. I do like to comment on people's style. Okay, so something just as simple as like, hey, cool necklace, but I have to actually think that. Okay. That's the key. I can't be like, oh, she's wearing a necklace, so I'll talk about a necklace. <laughs> like, you got to be like, oh, that is a legit cool necklace. Uh-huh. Because I just think it has to be authentic. But it doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be like, I mm-hmm. noticed you from, I think that's That sucks. This is honestly. I've just been implementing that. I've just been talking to men that I find attractive. Yeah. I haven't gotten any dates out of it, but uh, for me, I feel good. I'm yeah. like, ooh, I, I did something that I don't normally do. Right. Did you ever get any advice like from a, like older adults when you were younger or like your mom? My mother used to say that men could smell desperation. <laughs> so she'd like, just chill out, Nicole. And I'd be like, but I want one now. <laughs> so I was a thirsty little girl. I used to love this boy named Mark mm-hmm. when I was in middle school. Like, mm-hmm. I loved him. I think right. I was in sixth grade. He was in eighth grade. Mm-hmm. And he lived next to my piano teacher's house. <laughs> so I would beg my mom to just drive near his house, which is insane. <laughs> I would drive near him and be like, he's inside. That's like, I don't very know stalkerish. what the end goal like, was. That's like a little. Oh, not. It's completely yeah. stalkerish. But also you had to get your mom but also, involved. My mom would do it and then tell me that men could smell desperation. I'm like, mixed signals match? Like, you're enabling me to be desperate. (laughs) Thanks, Mom. (laughs) So, all right. So if there's a guy who sees one of your profiles online and is into you, what would really catch your eye in a message that he would send you? Honestly, at this point, all I would love (laughs) is, hey... I would love to take you out for a drink. Right. Okay. That's honestly it. Is there a deal breaker for you? Like if you go out on a date with somebody and that would basically make you like leave the table and not come back? I mean, I went on a date recently. I tell this joke on stage and sometimes people hate it, but I went on a date with this guy 
who had a stutter. And like, there's nothing wrong with a stutter. I don't mm-hmm. care. But if you have a stutter, you have to be interesting. Because if I'm going to wait for the end of a sentence, it better be good. <laughs> like, he was so boring. <laughs> but yeah, he was... So during the date, I was talking about how much I hate soup. Because I was trying to just like connect with him on any level. And then he was like, you sure do hate a lot of things. So I said, is there anything you hate? And he thought for a second and said... I hate injustice in the world. Oh, boy. And I said, you know what? Me too. The injustice that they serve soup in restaurants. And he didn't laugh. And I was like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) I can't. If you don't have any spark of joy or like a twinkle in your eye or like a whimsicality about you, I can't be with you. Right. He was like, do you want to get another drink somewhere else? And I said, actually, I think I'm going to go home. And then, like, I saw it <laughs> cut him real deep. I almost said, you know what? No, let's go. Right. And I was like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. I yeah. felt very powerful as I drove home laughing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you did it, girl. You got out of that. Because <laughs> I was like, it's not going to get better. He's going to get drunker and boringer. Mm-hmm. Boringer? More boring. Whatever. You're going to get drunker and bolder and probably hurt his feelings. Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's good. You push the eject button like at the precisely mm-hmm. correct time. So before I let you go, I want to ask, like, what is your one piece of advice for people out there in the dating scene right now? What have you learned that you can pass on to the other single folks out there? That you are a complete person. Someone else doesn't complete you. And you got to love yourself, your whole self, your body, your mind, everything. Mm hmm. Sometimes I look in the mirror naked and I just go, ooh, baby, I love me, <laughs> which is so dumb, but it, it helps me. Do you say that out loud? Oh, yeah. I talk to myself so much. I love that. Honestly, you'll do it and it'll make yourself laugh and then you'll start your day on a chuckle. Nicole Byer is the host of Why Won't You Date Me from HeadGum. To find out more about her show or any of her other work, check out BigListen.org. Well, we've almost reached the end of this week's episode. Mm, Nope, don't believe it. But before we let you go, it's time for... C-H-A-R-T-O-G-R-A-P-H-Y. Chartography is our 60-second mapping of the Apple podcast charts. But we're not looking at number one or even number 100. We're looking at number 289. And if your show has reached number 289, you should throw yourself a parade because that's pretty darn great. Okay, so this week's 289 is a show called You Made It Weird with Pete Holmes. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Everyone has a secret weirdness and Pete Holmes is going to get to the bottom of it. I gotta do this. I had to wade through like 10 minutes of ads. Which is my happy juice. Is that a good, that's a good slogan for any product. Before I could even get to the start, um, when they brought the guest on, who was Jay Duplass. Enjoy Day Day Duplass. Day Duplass. The Duplass brothers, uh, you know, they're, they're film writers, producers, directors, actors, all the things. The credits to Transparent yeah. make me cry uh, oh, yeah. every time. Every time. Um, Jay whose real name is Lawrence, I learned in this podcast. The grandson of a Lawrence. And you're Lawrence. And the father of a Lawrence. And he and uh, Mr. Holmes had a rollicking conversation about circumcision. So I'm circumcised. 
Yeah. And then um, and then the air conditioning goes on in either the studio or Jay Duplass's home. And then they spend like time trying to turn off the air conditioning because it sounds like they're in a wind tunnel. It sounds like white noise, doesn't it? Then they hit on some pretty awesome topics like puberty and Catholic guilt and the sexiness of the church because of the robes and the incense and the organ music. The robes are for babies. Robes. <laughs> robes, incense, and uh, slowly building music. <laughs> then they talked about Viagra. Viagra yeah. is a time Time travel machine. Yeah. Masculinity and femininity and basic gender dynamics. There's like a quest. It's a quest. There's a quest. I need a quest. And that was literally only in the first 30 minutes. Please. Okay. Couldn't be more riveted. So here we go. Yeah. Hit up. You made it weird. Want to listen to the big listen on the go? Great news. You can. Just go to Apple Podcasts or NPR One or any fine purveyor of podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you're feeling it, leave us a little review. It really helps other very attractive listeners find the show. Also, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Here Big Listen. That's H-E-A-R Big Listen. If you want to drop us a love note, you can also email us at biglisten at WAMU.org. The show today was produced by Daisy Rosario Ponce Rutch and Jacqueline Hyman. Jake Cherry makes the show. I, Lauren Ober, was wondering why my daffodils are blooming in February. David Schulman composed the theme music. Other music in the show came from Army Navy, the band, not the store. The Big Listen is the brainchild of boss lady Andy McDaniel and her boss man, J.J. Yore, and is produced by WAMU and American University and distributed by NPR in Washington, D.C., capital of America. And now a few final thoughts from Heather Mazier, former Maryland gubernatorial candidate and legislator turned podcast host about making something out of adversity and disappointment. Of course I was crushed after I lost the race for governor. But the place I'm in now, as a result of going through that experience and then really being thoughtful about what that experience meant and what I was supposed to come out of it with and the way it changed and shaped my views, has been such a gift. And that gift helped her forge a new path. So a lot of what I'm doing is working on getting everyone to shine their own individual lights. We just focus on being our best selves, each of us individually. All of a sudden, everything outside of us naturally shifts. So you work on being your best self, and I will too. Thanks for hanging out, pals. Till next time, keep listening, America. This is NPR. NPR.